Well, the news has been filled this week with the political pundits trying to explain what happened in the election this past week. It's been funny to hear what they've said about the landslide of discontent discontent that was demonstrated in the way that people voted. And if the politicians didn't get the message, it's that people are pretty fed up with the job that they've been doing. Now, it's interesting that uh, some people are still trying to explain the problem in different ways. Uh, One of those is John Blake, a columnist for CNN. And he says, if you think that the voters are in a cranky mood over politics, a new poll suggests that some of the dissatisfaction may run even deeper, as God's job performance has, has had trouble measuring up to many Americans' expectations. And he points to a poll that was done uh, in July of 2011 by the polling policy, uh, the public polling policy, which is a Democratic firm based in North Carolina. And that poll found that only 52% of Americans approve of the job that God is doing. Now, only, only 9% are actually discontent. Now, I would love to talk to those 9% and find out if they think they could do a better job than God is doing. What about you? Have you ever thought that maybe you could do a better job than God is doing? You know, as we look at our passage today in James chapter 4, what we're going to find is that James says some of us are trying to take God's place. I invite you to look with me at James 4, verses 11 through 12. There it says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, are you really able to take God's place? Now, one of the Christian misnomers is that people say, well, as Christians, you know, we're not to judge. And they'll look at a passage like we're looking at today. Or the one that they often point to is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. In Matthew 7, 1, it says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, as we've talked about through the book of James, we are always to look at the content, the context of a verse in order to, to understand what it's really saying. And when we look at just Matthew 7, 1 alone, where it says, do not judge, as people like to say, what they're doing is separating it from the rest of the context. Because in Matthew 7, 2 through 5, it says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, Jesus isn't telling us here not to judge. But what he's telling us is, do not judge with the pharisaical attitude, that holier-than-thou problem that the religious leaders in Jesus' day had. Uh, We see something similar in Romans chapter 2 and verses 1 through uh, 3. It says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, 
When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. You see, it's not telling us not to judge. Matthew said, in the way in which you judge, your standard of measure, that is what will be measured against you. There was a, in the old days, some of you will recall the frontier towns where they had the general stores. And those were the barter and trade type of economies. And there was a woman who went into the general store one day with a sack of flour, a one-pound sack of uh, flour she wanted to sell to the store, a crop she had grown and processed. And the shopkeeper takes her her one-pound sack of flour, puts it on the scale, and he says, ma'am, I'm sorry, but your one-pound sack is a a couple of ounces short. And the woman said, wow, that's interesting. She said, you see, I couldn't find my one-pound weight, so I took the one pound of sugar that I bought here yesterday, and I used that as my weight. Matthew says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured against you. As you think about the way that you judge others, do you use the same level of mercy and grace for them as God gives to us? That's what God is talking to us about. As, as he says that we are not to judge, he says the problem is we fall short in places. And one of those that he highlights is something he's talked about extensively through this book, which is our speech. He, he says here in verse 11, do not speak against one another. Now, some translations will use the word slander, which means a malicious speech that is untrue. But James goes beyond just what is untrue to talk about all speech that harms. The, the Greek word that he uses here is kataleleo, which literally means to talk down about somebody. To talk down about somebody. It's not just malicious speech that may be untrue. He says, is your speech that which talks down about people? Now, this is in contrast to what we're told in Ephesians 4.29. In Ephesians 4.29, it tells us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only, it says, such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. So as you think about the way that you talk, what you say about others, what we should do is use this test here in Ephesians 4.29. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth except what is good for edification. We hear about the edifice of a building. It means to build somebody up. He says, is is your speech good? The Greek word is agathos. It means helpful. Is your speech helpful for building somebody up rather than tearing them down? It it tells us that it may give grace to those who hear. That means to confer a blessing. When people hear you speak, do they blush or are they blessed by what you say? Another test that we can use is to think of the word think. I have this on my refrigerator at home for my kids. And it says, we always ask our kids when they say something that is not according to Ephesians 4.29, not something kind, and we say, Did you think? Is what you said true, first of all? T, is it true? Is H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? And K, is it kind? Do we think before we speak? Is what we're saying true? It may be. 
But then you have to ask yourself these other things. Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it inspiring? Is it kind? I mean, why are you speaking the things that you're saying? It's not that we're never to say hard things. It's not that we're never to judge. In fact, it's the Christian's duty to judge. If you keep reading there in Matthew later, he tells us as believers to judge the false teachers in our church. When you look at the context, he says we are to use discernment. We are to weigh right from wrong. When it speaks of whether or not something is true, uh, what we have to ask ourselves is, is are, are we more of a wrecking crew or in the building business? Is what we're saying more productive than destructive? It doesn't mean we never say hard things. In fact, do we love somebody enough to say the hard things? Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the words of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the hard things we say to somebody will hurt them. But we have to ask them, is it because we love them enough to step in and have that hard conversation and say, I care so much about you. I want you to know that what you're doing is hurting your reputation or hurting others, or I see you taking a path that is in a wrong way that is going to lead to destruction. This is what we're called to do. The word love is what we're reading about here in James. As he talks about not judging, I want you to remember that earlier in this book, he talked to us about the royal law. Do you remember that? The royal law we saw back in chapter 2 was that of love. The royal law law in 2.8 was that we, when we fulfill the royal law of God, we love God and we love others, as he said in James 2.8. And here in verse 12, what he's telling us is there is only one lawgiver and one judge. The word lawgiver is a compound word. It's unique. It's used only here in the entire New Testament. The word namas for law. And then the word uh, for, for law, for um, uh, tithemi is the word that means to set in place, to constitute, or lay down. And God is the one, it tells us, who authored the law and he administrates the law. There is only, it's not like our government that is to have a separation of powers. It says that God is both the judicial branch as well as the executive branch. He sets the laws. He governs the laws. And what James says to us is, uh, we are not to be those who try to take God's place. Have you ever met somebody who's judge, jury, and executioner? Ever met a person like that? And James says at times we as believers put ourselves in God's place, and we decide we want to be the judge, jury, and the executioner. And he says, this is not how it's to be with you. You are to speak the truth. You are to judge right from wrong, but you're to do it in a way where you're administering the same level of grace and mercy to others as you yourself has received. Matthew told us, why do you go after the speck in another's eye when you forget the log that is sticking out of your own? He says, deal with your sin first, and then you will be able to better help another to deal with their sin. So again, it's not saying that we are, we are never to talk about what is right and wrong. We are to do it, but with this understanding. You know, one of the flaws that we have, it says only God alone is able to do this. And the reason for that is we bring our own flaws into the process. You know, it's interesting. We judge other people based on our expectations of them, right? But we give ourselves the grace and base our attitudes, our actions based upon our intentions. We judge others on our expectations of them, but we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt with our intentions. 
And just as Matthew said, do you uh, understand that by your same measure, it will be weighed against you? Another flaw where we fall short is that we don't have the type of understanding. We don't have the knowledge, the big word omniscience that means God is all-knowing. We don't have all the facts, and God does. So many times, uh, God knows things that we do not know about another person. And we look at the externals alone. Yet in John seven twenty four, Jesus tells us, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. You recall that back in James chapter 2, James talked to us about how we fall short and sometimes we look at the externals when he used the example of how we treat those who appear to be rich better than those who are poor. And as you look at the way in which you judge others, are you judging on the externals, the surface things that you see, or are you judging with a deeper knowledge, with a true understanding, a true heart knowledge of the person? You know, even if we base our judgment, even if we don't base our judgment on how somebody looks, oftentimes what we do is we make too broad of a judgment. Have you ever met somebody and, and you went to greet them and they seem distant and you're like, that person's not very friendly. And you're thinking, oh yeah, just a few minutes ago in the welcome time, I went to shake somebody's hand and they didn't shake my hand. So they're not friendly, right? You see, what we don't understand sometimes is, first of all, that may have just been a fluke. They may not have seen you. Or it could be that something is going on in their life right now that is so much deeper than you, you know. They walked in here this morning dealing with some difficulty or trial in their life. And right now their mind is so preoccupied with the hard things that they're dealing with. Henry David Thoreau once said, Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through the eyes of another for an instant? I want you to watch this video. It's a, it's a video that was actually produced by Chick-fil-A as a training video for their customer service people. But in it, it kind of illustrates what it is that we're talking about today, where we look at the internal as to what is going on in somebody's life. So watch this video.
You see, the only way that we can really rightly judge somebody is if we know everything about them. I don't think we got the message the first time. And, and this is what James is telling us. He says only God is perfect and holy enough to be able to set aside all the personal things that we have to get in the way, as well as only God is omniscient enough to really know everything about somebody, which is why only he is truly qualified to be the lawgiver and judge. Now, God's omniscience comes into play in what James says again in verses 13 through 16. He says, come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and and also do this or that. But as it is, your boast, as it is, you boast in your arrogance And all such boasting is evil. You see, in verses 11 through 12, James talked about the peril of playing God in the lives of others. And here, he talks about how we play God in our own lives because we think we're in control. We think we understand and we can direct and and control the future. But he tells us that's not the case. Chuck Swindoll looks at these verses and he gives us what he calls rules for playing God in James 4.13. And the first one he says is, when we look at today or tomorrow, he says, well, set your own schedule or select your own path. We will go to such and such a city or place your own limits. I'm going to spend a year there. Arrange your own activities. I'm going to engage in business. Predict your own outcome. We will make a profit. Now, as we read this verse, God isn't against planning. It's not that God doesn't want us to plan. There is great wisdom in planning. In fact, he commands us to plan. As you look at uh, throughout the scriptures in Luke 14, 28 through 31, Jesus said this, For which one of you, when he wants to build a, a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish it. And all who observe begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out uh, to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. You see, God says we are to plan. But when we plan, he says, don't leave God out of the process. Don't forget to include God in the plan. As you think about the way that you plan, The people in James' example were living like practical atheists, as if God didn't exist. Nowhere do we see, did they pray about it? Did they seek God? Did they say, these are uh, loosely held in my hand, God, whatever it is you want to do with it? As you think about your own life, how is God included in it? Do you begin with prayer and truly seek his, his direction for you? Or do you just go about it and make your own plans? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 16, 9 tells us, Man plans, but the Lord directs his steps. 
When we try to cut God out of our plans, what we're saying is, God, I am the captain of my destiny. I have the wheel in my hand. I control the direction of my life. You're okay to take care of these things over here, but I'm in control of all of these things. Is that how you live your life? James tells us we are not to cut God out of the plans. In verse 14, he says, You do not even know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your life is a vapor. Have you ever gone out on a cold morning and as you exhale, you see your breath kind of form that, and then it's gone. It's gone in a moment. Now, I know we live in South Texas, so it's, it's not really that cold here. So let me give you another illustration. He says, there's your life. Did you miss it? There's your life. You're going, gosh, Roger, that's kind of a bummer. I mean, I was hoping for more than a Lysol type of life, right? Do you have something like Hawaiian Island mist? That's kind of a little more along the dreams of what I was thinking my life would be like. But he says, that's our life. You are here and then you're gone. It's that fast. It doesn't matter whether you live a long time or you live in uh, just a short amount of time according to our standards because what God says is in light of eternity, we are just a poof. We're here today and gone tomorrow. He says, you do not even know what tomorrow looks like. And I see that, I am reminded of that so many times. One of the privileges and one of the hard things that is also a part of the pastorate is you are involved in people's lives in those moments where you're reminded that life is just a vapor. This week alone, we had a couple of uh, those in our church go home to be with the Lord again. One of those was a dear woman many of you knew, Linda Winters. And as we were planning her service, as her husband Dickie and her three adult sons were walking through the planning of the memorial and the graveside and everything was set and Thursday morning was Linda's uh, graveside service and Friday morning was her memorial here. Well, the morning of Thursday, as we were planning to go to the cemetery, uh, I received a call early that morning that said one of Linda's sons, a 30-something-year-old, one of the sons, Chad, died of a heart attack that night. Here was a family grieving the loss of their mom and their wife. And that night, a man in his 30s came to his end. We need to pray for the Winters family. They have a double level of grief they're dealing with. But here again was a vivid reminder of the briefness of life. You hear pastors all the time say, well, you could die today. And we think, yeah, yeah, right. We are all one heartbeat away from eternity. James says that our life is a vapor. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And he says, you do not know what tomorrow is like. Job spoke of the briefness of his life. He said in Job 7, 6, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And if you're not familiar with that, if you've ever watched the way they weave tapestries, they have this little thing that they move back and forth. And what Job was saying is, zip, 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 that's it. My life is here and it's gone. The days fly by. I had a reminder of that last weekend. On Saturday, I was in Austin at the University of Texas because my my son was at a swim meet there in the, the natatorium at the University of Texas. 
And as we walked into that building, and I'm looking at all the pools and everything, and I've got my family there with me, it hit me. Over 30 years ago, I had been in that same pool. And I said to my kids, I said, you see that pool right there? Daddy swam in that 30 years ago. And they're looking at me like, And then after the meet, we walked around the campus, and, and their mom and I, Kim and I, are going, right there, this is where we met. 29 years ago, this is where I met your mom. And again, they're looking at us like, you're old. <laughs> and for some of you, you're sitting here going, 30 years is nothing, and others of you are going, I wasn't even born then. But that's the reality. Life is that fast. It goes by that fast. You see, we count our years and birthdays, but God says in Psalm 90:12 to number our days. And those things, click, 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 like a weaver's shuttle, they just go by. They pass before us in an instant. One, one of the things that the ancients would do in Constantinople, when, when an Eastern emperor was crowned, they would have the royal mason set before his majesty several marble slabs. And he was at that very moment to pick out his tombstone. Because they felt at the moment of elevation, when the person was reaching the pinnacle of everything, they should be reminded that your funeral is coming one day. I think they had it right. Ken Hughes says, perhaps this would be a profitable ceremony, say at graduation, where those who are younger and at the best of health could see and sense how short and unpredictable life really is. He says, it would perhaps be so much easier to give it all to Christ if we knew how short our time was. As you look at your life, it's just a puff. Just a vapor, James says. And he says, with all that in mind, are you living in light of eternity? Do you realize that the decisions, the things that you are doing now, have an eternal, long-term, lasting consequence or benefit based upon the decision that you make right now? James points out in verse 14 that we as humans have no idea what tomorrow will hold, much less the long-term future. And as I said, I was reminded just again this week of what that is like. As a person who had no idea that his passing was to be that very night, stepped into eternity. And thankfully, Chad was said to know the Lord just as his mom did. So they had a a glorious reunion in heaven. You know, as we think about our own lives, as you look at your life, Does God have the throne of your life or are you trying to be in control? When that day of passing comes, will we be welcomed home to heaven? Jesus Christ says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, are you on the right road? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who provided the bridge home through the cross From earth to heaven, have you stepped across that line of faith so that you can walk across that bridge and also meet the Lord when your days are done here on earth? James tells us in verse 15 that rather than trying to be the captain of our destiny, instead we ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and we will also do this or that. 
A few centuries ago, when, when people would, would sign their name to correspondence or legal documents, they would include the initials DV, DV, which stood for Deo Valenti. It's Latin for God willing. And as they signed their names, they would put DV, God willing. Do we live our lives like that with the understanding that if God wills, this or that can happen? Now, there's a danger. People mindlessly at some point just started to put DV without even thinking about God willing. I mean, we've lived through that in our own lives, haven't we? Have you, do you remember the, the what would Jesus do, the WWJD craze? People wore the bracelets, and it was supposed to stand for what would Jesus do? And we were always to stop and ask ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then we were to do it. But how many people after a while just forgot? And just like DV, God willing, no longer was what directed their steps, but became just a cliché. Think about what would happen if we decided to actually live where we asked ourselves, what is God's will for me in this situation? And then we did it. God wills should be written over a student's plans for his or her life. God wills, God will, if God wills should be written across every business decision that we make. If God wills should be written across every prayer that we pray for our kids, whether it's what they will become or who they will marry. If God wills should be written across every relationship decision you make, especially when it comes to dating and marrying somebody. You know, when I met my wife, 29 years ago, that first time that I met her, I didn't think, boy, this is my wife. But I'm thankful that to that point in my life, I had been praying. I had been praying for years before that, God, would you lead me to a godly lady who, if it is your will, would be my life partner. So when I met that woman, that beautiful, spiritual-looking young woman there on the University of Texas campus, I said, wow. And then here we are. As you look at your life, do you write across it, God willing? That's what James says we should do. In Matthew 6.33, we're told, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Is God really the focus of your life or has he been shoved to the margins? Have you shoved God to the margins and you live more like this according to the rules for playing God in James 4.13 where you're setting your own schedule, selecting your own path, placing your own limits, arranging your own activities, and predicting your own outcome? James tells us there's a peril in trying to play God when we do these things. If we're living this way, he tells us in verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and such boasting is evil. But it doesn't have to be that way. We, if we're willing to let God be the one in control, God to have the throne of our life, he says that is what we need to do. He looks at, look at verse 17. He says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. There was a Sunday school teacher who was trying to teach a class of young children about the difference between the sins of commission and the sins of omission. And she said, the sins of commission are the things that we do that are wrong. And then she asked this class, what, what is the sin of omission? And this one bright little boy raises his hand and he says, those are the sins we want to do, but we haven't gotten around to doing yet. 
Does anybody here identify with that little boy? What James says is the sin of omission in our life is when we know the right thing to do and then we don't do it. Remember that earlier in this book, James told us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. Last week, we saw right before this section that he gave us 10 things to do, 10 commands for us to do. James says, you know what to do. The question is, are you doing these things? And as we end today, God is very clear about who belongs on the throne of our lives. He says, there is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge. And friends, it is not you. And it is not me. It is God alone. And so ask yourself this morning, who is seated on the throne of your life? Who has control of your heart and the direction of your world? Is it God or you? If you're here today and you're trying to do it on your own, if you're trying to get to God by being good enough, or you're trying to get through life uh, based upon your own wisdom and direction, God says you will fail on all accounts. But if you will turn to his son, Jesus Christ, and you will say, God, first of all, I recognize I have fallen short of your standard of perfection. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God, that standard of perfection. If you recognize that the road is out on the road you have been running, that bridge is out, and at some point in your life, you're going to go over the precipice that equals eternal separation from God, God says there is a chance for you to change the course. If you will instead turn to my son and receive him as your savior and say, Jesus, today I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you to be my savior. God says he will lay that cross down and provide the bridge from here to there to your eternal home in heaven. And he offers that to you today. But it requires you today to say, God, I am no longer the one sitting on the throne of my life. I'm turning my life over to you today. Now, for many of us here, we've done that in the past. But we've been fighting God for control of our life again. Many of us live our life with the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. No, God is the pilot. We're not even in the the co-pilot seat. We're not the engineer directing the flight. We're back in coach. And we need to let him have control and trust him to direct our life. So if you're here today and you've taken back control of areas of your life, God says to you today to let it go, to give your life back to God, to put him back on the throne of your life. As we end today, I want you just to take a few moments to think about your own life. I want you to think about the places where you've taken control in your home, in your business, in your relationships. And take this time now just to say to God, today, God, I'm yielding the throne of my life anew. It may be for the first time you need to come to faith in him. You need to say, God, today I will give you my life. Today I'm trusting you to be the Lord of my life. I'm turning from my sins into you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Others of us here have done that, but we've taken back the wheel, and God says to us today, we need to give it back. We need to place him back on the throne of our life. So I want you just to think about your life for a moment, to talk to God in prayer, and I'll close this in just a few moments. Will you join me as we pray?
Lord God, as you've been listening to our prayers, you know our hearts. Father, you know those of us who need to know you in a real and personal way. You know those of us who have a lot of head knowledge about who you are and what your word says, but maybe we've never come to a personal relationship where we've placed our faith and trust in you. And today I pray, Lord, would be the day for those who have not yet yielded true and total control of their life, turning to you as their personal Savior, that today, Lord, would be the day where they say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm, I'm far from you. But today I want to change that, God. I'm turning around and I'm turning from my sins into you. And I'm accepting your death, Jesus, as my payment. You tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so today I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today who's never received that great gift, this would be the day of salvation. Father, for the rest of us, we confess that there are times that we've said, you, you are the Lord of our life, you have the throne, and yet we've pushed you aside and we've taken back control. And today, God, in those areas, whether it be our home, our relationships, our businesses, our school plans, our day-to-day lives, whatever it is, Father, that we have taken control, we, we give it back to you today, God. We want you to be the Lord. We want you to be the rightful king directing our steps. And so we ask God for your help today to yield these things, to make the changes in our practices that would allow you to be the one who's not just a part of our plans, but the architect of our plans, the one who would lead, guide, and direct us. As we leave today, Father, we pray that we would be those who yield ourselves to you, who walk with you, and who have our lives changed So we commit ourselves anew to you, Jesus. Send us out now. Help us to live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are prayer leaders here at the front. If there's something that you need help with, somebody you'd like to pray with, they would love to do that. For the rest of us, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.